0: Hey there, Java junkies. Welcome to another episode of Time for Coffee. I am so thrilled you press play. And you will be too when you learn who my next guest is, especially if you're interested in the field of economics and U.S. monetary policy. But before I introduce you to Dr. Janet Yellen, I want to make sure you've signed up for the Java Junkies Journal. That's our weekly newsletter that gives you a sneak peek on the guests we're going to be featuring that week. Just head over to the Time for Coffee website at time4coffee.org and the sign up box is right there on the homepage. Now, my brainy Java junkies, please grab your mug and take a chug of your favorite caffeinated brew because it's time for another caffeinated career conversation. And my esteemed guest today is Dr. Janet Yellen, a distinguished fellow in residence with the Economic Studies Program at the Brookings Institution and the former chair of the Board of Governors of the Federal Reserve System, serving from 2014 to 2018 as the first woman to head that institution. During her tenure, the U.S. unemployment rate dropped from 6.7% to 4.1%, reportedly in part because of Dr. Yellen's efforts to continue stimulating the economy even after unemployment fell to 5%. Prior to her appointment as chair of the Fed, Dr. Yellen served as vice chair of the Board of Governors, taking office in October 2010. Previously, she was president and chief executive officer of the Federal Reserve Bank of San Francisco. She was also chair of the White House Council of Economic Advisors under President Bill Clinton and business professor at the University of California, Berkeley, Haas School of Business. Dr. Janet Yellen, welcome to Time for Coffee. Are you caffeinated and ready to go? I'm ready to go. Thank you, Andrea. It's a pleasure to be with you. Well, it is such a pleasure to be with you. And I want our Java junkies to know that I have asked you and you said you actually are more comfortable if I call you Janet. Yes, please do. So Janet, I would like to start by asking you about your last job when you were chairwoman of the Federal Reserve. Yes. First, for those young listeners who may not really understand what the Fed is and what it does, could you
1: give us an overview for the layperson? You bet. The Federal Reserve does a number of different things, but they're all connected with the goal of trying to assure that we have a stable and well functioning financial system and economy. The job that most people hear about most often pertains to monetary policy. The Fed is charged with setting the levels of interest rates in the U.S. economy with the goals of achieving low inflation and a very strong job market, the strongest that we can possibly engineer consistent with low inflation. So the committee called the Federal Open Market Committee meets eight times a year to assess economic conditions, to determine what monetary conditions, what level of interest rates they think would be appropriate to achieve these goals. Sometimes it means establishing uh, very low interest rates, as was true after the financial crisis when unemployment was very high. The objective of setting interest rates at very low levels is to make it easy for people, households, and businesses borrow and to spend. When they do that, they create demand for goods and services throughout the economy that in turn drives businesses to hire workers and strengthens the job market. Sometimes when inflation looks like it will threaten or when the job market is very tight, it becomes appropriate to raise interest rates toward more normal levels to make sure that the economy doesn't become inflationary. But that's one job. Another job is to supervise some of the largest banking organizations in the country with the goal of making sure that they operate in a safe and sound fashion that They have enough capital, enough liquidity to, through good times and bad times, have the strength to be able to meet the credit needs of households and businesses throughout the economy. So, those are two main jobs of the Federal Reserve. Fantastic. Now, you had the
0: top job. I did. At the Fed for four years. You had worked there a lot longer, of course. Yes. How was it different? being the chairwoman. And
1: what were your responsibilities? I think what surprised me about the job was that it was different to be the chairperson than to be the vice chair or a governor or a Reserve Bank president. As you mentioned, I had a number of jobs in the Federal Reserve, and I'd even spent time as an economist Early in my career serving on the staff, of the Federal Reserve Board. But particularly, I had been vice chair from 2010 to 2014. And in some ways, it seemed like it would be a small step to become chair, but it wasn't. And I think the reason is that the public identifies the institution with the chairperson, and you become the public face of the institution. I remember I had been in the Federal Reserve for many years when Alan Greenspan was chair. And when people talked about the Fed, they talked about Greenspan. Senator McCain once joked that if anything happened to Alan Greenspan, it would be necessary to put on sunglasses to prop him up in his chair so that the public had confidence the Federal Reserve could continue to run. And I remember all of us at the time thought, well, people really don't understand. The Federal Reserve is an institution that's deep with expertise. There are many people below the level of the chair. If anything were to happen to the chair, of course, the institution would go on functioning. But the public doesn't see it that way. The public identifies the institution with the chair And that creates a special responsibility for the chair to try to communicate to the public what this institution is about, what its values are, what it is trying to do, what its mission is, and to communicate with the public about how it's going about doing that. And so that is a special responsibility. It involves press conferences. It involves lots of public speeches, it involves congressional testimony, but representing the institution to the public is a special job that falls disproportionately on the chair. Of course, the chair also has to lead the institution. And particularly the committee that sets monetary policy in the United States, it's a large committee many many countries have central banks where monetary policy is made by a committee. but usually the committee will have five, six, seven people. The Federal open market committee actually has nineteen people, which is very large. 12 of them vote at any one time, but there are 19 participants. And for the organization to be successful, it really needs to forge a consensus. Individuals can have their own opinions, they can make speeches, they can offer their individual perspectives, but there needs to be a policy decision And there needs to be sufficient consensus behind the decision and rationale for the decision for the institution to be effective. And so finding a way to form that consensus, to get people who come from different backgrounds, bring different perspectives. That's all valuable, but they need to come together and be able to speak in a united way with something close to one voice. So that's a responsibility.
0: Absolutely. Without going into the specifics maybe of what the policy was that you were pushing, did you have times where You didn't have unanimity of opinion where you had to work various members of the board behind the scenes
1: to win them over. And how did you do it? So I often had to work the committee in order to bring people together to find consensus. So particular before every policy meeting, I made it a practice the couple of days before the meeting to talk to each and every member of the committee, voting or non-voting, one-on-one. So I felt a key requirement here is respect for individual views and Listening to how people are perceiving the economy and how they think about policy. So, I tried to listen carefully, both individually and in committee meetings, to the different perspectives of members. But I also tried to emphasize to create a sense of collegiality so that people appreciated that we needed to come together and find common ground in order to be successful. And I often compare the job of the chair in finding that consensus with the job that a designer would face if you had a group of individuals who, let's say, faced the task of deciding what color to paint a room. And... Uh, imagine the designer goes around the table and asks each person in turn, what do you think is the right color to paint the room? And the first person says pink. This room would look beautiful in pink. And the next person says baby blue. That's obviously the right choice. It goes with the furniture. It is really perfect. And you've listened to 19 people all offer their diverse Views, and you might think to yourself, this is never going to work. These people don't agree on anything. But I think the trick of finding consensus is to let people see that if they can't have their first choice, there might be a second choice that they could feel comfortable with, even though it might not be as brilliant as their first choice was. So I felt my job is to make people see that off white is something that many of us could rally around. And while not as brilliant as pink or baby blue, maybe it's an acceptable choice and we can find common ground. And I often felt that that was what my job was to see we did have a place where there was common ground and we could come together at that place. Fantastic. There are a
0: lot of analogies that I would have thought of, but never a designer. (laughs) Did you feel any additional pressure knowing that you had broken a glass ceiling as the first woman to make it into the position of Fed chair?
1: I did feel some pressure. I realized that as the first woman to hold a position with that level of responsibility, that there were particularly many women in business and finance throughout the country who looked to me as a role model and I think wanted to see me succeed. And both for my own sake and for their sake, I did want to succeed. And I did want to show that women are up to the job of being able to perform in high-pressure settings and to make good decisions and to explain them to the public. So I did feel a little bit of extra pressure, and I worked hard to be able to manage the high-stress situations that I found myself in, whether it was giving press conferences that millions of people were watching or testifying to Congress I've always studied hard and prepared for things that you can prepare for, and this was really no exception from my point of view, I try to perform well on the job. And of course, at the end of the day, my goal, as you mentioned in your introduction, I started with a 6.7% unemployment rate. It was better than the 10% unemployment rate we had in the United States in 2009 after the financial crisis, but it was still too high. And my overriding goal was to put people back to work and to create a job market where young people entering the job market or older people losing a job and looking for another would be able to find meaningful work. And that was substantively what I was really focused on. I'd like to get back to the fact that you
0: felt that additional pressure. And outside of the extra work That you put in to perform at the extremely high level that you did. In hindsight, is there any advice you could offer? Do you think, I mean, look, I can say personally, I put much more pressure on myself than I think any supervisor I had Mm -hmm. ever did. What advice would you offer young people, young women out there who are putting a whole lot of pressure on themselves? How can you? counsel them as to maybe something you learned through the process of being in such a high pressure position. Do you feel
1: maybe you could have taken off a little bit of the pressure? Well, I guess I came to understand that the most you can do is your best. And sometimes things don't go right. And you're unhappy with how things turned out. And you really need to give yourself a break and to be able to say to yourself, look, I tried, I did my best, I feel good about my effort. It didn't come out perfectly. That's the best that human beings can expect of themselves. I'll always remember my first press conference. I had really worked very hard to prepare for it. I actually got sick. The weekend before my first meeting and first press conference, I was running a very high fever and I still stuck with it. Oh. I did my very best to prepare. I wasn't even sure I'd be able to go to it, but I I did go to the press conference. and Everything was going okay until someone asked me a question, a reporter asked me a question about some language in the statement. I had really decided and prepared we had some words like it would be a considerable time before interest rates were raised and I really didn't intend to define what considerable time meant and I got pressed and pressed and pressed on what did this mean and eventually I made a mistake and I said 6 months and that was a terrible error and the minute I said 6 months I later discovered the market started plummeting and by the time I'd walked out of the press conference, the Dow would fall in 350 points. And that was just a mistake. And I felt bad about it. And it was early in my tenure. And I thought, well, I've done this for the first time. Everything is going badly. Maybe I can't do it. And eventually, as I look back on it, I think, okay, I made a mistake. And I didn't make another mistake like that. But I think you have to Not beat up on yourself too much when you make an error. How did you recover? You know, I went to the next one. I tried to do my job the next time, and things happen. And you just can't be too tough on yourself. I think that is so
0: wonderful. And thank you for sharing Mm -hmm. that with us, Janet, because I think it's very easy for all of us to look at someone like you who's had an extraordinary Profession thank you, and to say, "Well, of course, you can never make a mistake if you get <laughs> to that level, but
1: as you said, we're only human, right, right. I think most people have had that experience. My predecessor certainly had it, and I've seen many people at high levels who say something or do something wasn't what they intended. They regret it. And you go on to live another day and you try your best. And that's the most that human beings can do. And in hindsight, that market drop was a blip on the screen. It was. Nobody would ever, in retrospect, notice it. But when I walked out, I felt the world might be coming uh, to an end. <laughs> At least for a short time, I felt that way. I want to talk with you a little bit
0: about your passion for economics and the fact that you have always been very interested, some might say passionate, extraordinarily passionate about studying the labor market as a means to reduce unemployment and stimulate job growth.
1: Why? Where did that come from? Well, I think it probably, looking back on it, in part derives from my parents and my childhood, how I grew up. My parents came of age, got married during the Great Depression. My father was a family doctor. He hung out his shingle in the middle of the Great Depression, and many of his patients were blue-collar workers in Brooklyn who worked in the docks in blue-collar jobs and the ups and downs of the economy very much affected them. And if they lost a job, he was very involved in their lives and saw what impact it had on them, on their families, how important it is to be able to find a job, to support your family, to get ahead and to have a meaningful life. And of course, the Great Depression, which I heard about from my family, but I also studied as an undergraduate, one of my first economics courses. I mean, I was horrified to think of a period that lasted for many years when the unemployment rate in the United States was close to 20%, when you had such a large share of Americans who simply could not find work to put meals on the tables for their families. And to me, this seemed like a breakdown in our market system that was horrific and had terrible welfare consequences. And I learned in my early studies of economics, that there were policies, particularly the Federal Reserve monetary policy and fiscal policies that could be put in place that would make a difference and would end periods like this. And I thought that was important. And I always wanted to have an opportunity to participate in making those policies. And during much of my career, the U.S. economy performed very well. Starting in the mid-80s, there was a period in which unemployment was low and stable in the United States. Inflation was very low. Economists called that period the great moderation. It seemed as though business cycles were dead. Most people felt We could never have another situation like the Great Depression. That was something you'd learn about in textbooks, but it couldn't happen in the United States. But then we had a financial crisis, and lo and behold, it was really the first really major downturn that we'd had in the United States since the Great Depression. And very quickly, making policy to address it became immensely challenging. Months after the financial crisis by December of 2008, the Federal Reserve had lowered its short-term interest rate to zero. And although a few countries have taken short-term interest rates into slightly negative territory, for all practical purposes, Zero is as low as interest rates can go. And we've never had a situation like that since the Great Depression. Unemployment was 10%. People were struggling. 40% of Americans during those years lost their job or their home. And It was utterly essential to try to come up with ideas to put people back to work and to restore the job market. And I remember during those times, young people graduating from college looking for jobs. The job market was just terrible. And lots of people ended up staying at home, living with their parents, and not being able to gain work. So it really required a lot of thought and a lot of unconventional steps to be able to get the economy moving and the job market back to where it needed to be. So that was our focus during that time, Mine. Wonderful. Thank you.
0: Before we get into your expertise, In the field of economics, I have a couple of more timely questions to ask you. You just mentioned what it was like back in 08 for young college graduates looking at 10% unemployment out there. What words of comfort? Or maybe words of caution do you have about the job market that you could share with our young listeners right now who may be looking about graduating and entering the job market either this spring or later this year? What do you think they can expect in terms
1: of the robustness of our economy? So right now... Those who are graduating and will be looking for jobs are very fortunate that they will be stepping into one of the strongest overall job markets that we've seen in the United States in decades. A very large share of American firms report that one of their biggest difficulties is an inability to find workers. And... There are a lot of jobs out there. And by that, you mean white collar workers? White collar workers, particularly skilled workers, but also less skilled workers, find themselves in demand. So it is a good, strong job market, but it does require skills, it does require training, and the job market has been changing over time in a way that's going to require people to keep building their skills during their careers. It's not enough when you graduate from college to say, I'm finished. I know what I need to know for the job market. It's evolving very rapidly, demanding lifelong learning, new skills. And so always remaining, having the attitude I'm a lifelong student, is important to promote a career that will be satisfying over time. The other question that I would be remiss if I
0: didn't ask you had to do with a story that the Washington Post reported late last year in 2018 that while you very much impressed President Trump during your interview to keep the top job at the Fed, his advisors were urging the president to nominate his own choice. And again, the Washington Post reported that the president asked his aides about whether they thought you were tall enough to keep the job. And the president suggested that because you are five foot three,
1: which P.S. is only two inches shorter than I am. Actually, I have to tell you that that was a mistake in Wikipedia, that I'm actually only five feet zero inches. So it's a bit of an exaggeration to say that I'm five. So the fact that you're five feet, you weren't tall enough to lead the bank. So I had led the Federal Reserve for four years by most evaluations successfully in spite of my small stature. So I really think that's an example of a hiring criterion that is extremely inappropriate. I don't think that's the way we should judge people. I've had a successful career. I enjoyed serving as chair of the Fed. I have confidence in my successor, and I'm happy with my position at Brookings and my current activities. So I'm fine with, and it's up to the president to decide what he wants to do in terms of filling this position. But I consider it an example of kind of criterion that leaders and businesses should not be applying in deciding who to hire. And as you know, many people feel that they're not evaluated in the job market based on their real abilities, that often women or minorities feel that they're discriminated against. You rarely hear about decisions made on the basis of hype but it is an example of the kind of job market behavior that I think we in American society should try to work against. Thank you. So shifting yeah. gears, I would love for you to speak
0: to those young people who may not know yet what to major in, or who may not love what they're majoring in right now, or who may be intimidated to study economics, whether as a major or just to take a course or two in it. This is your opportunity, Janet, to inspire them to consider joining this field. And I want to say, P.S., I got my lowest grade in college in economics. I took a microeconomics course and my professor failed to do what you have already done, which is to help me connect the dots between the humanity that should be driving your study of economics and the idea that it can be and should be about human welfare and social justice and making the world a better place.
1: Well, I absolutely feel that economics should be about social justice. It should be about how to help people and society create opportunity for people and how they can have fulfilling lives and careers. Much of economics is about that. And it is about how economies work, how they shape the opportunities available to individuals and the public policies that we should be putting in place to promote well-being, whether it's in the job market or so that people can have secure retirement or have health care or have the wherewithal to acquire the skills they need to send their kids to college. It is ultimately about social justice and human welfare. And I'm sorry that the course that you took as an undergraduate didn't show you how economics relates to those goals. I think teaching economics in a way that develops people's analytic skills, but also reveals what economics is about and why it's important. This is something that's important to promote in teaching.
0: I kind of think maybe I should have started with macro and then moved into the micro. <laughs> <laughs> maybe so. I would like to flashback to when you were an undergraduate at Brown. You didn't start out as an economics major. Is that
1: right? Well, I had some other thoughts when I enrolled. Math as a major was a possibility. I at one time thought about philosophy or chemistry, but I was fortunate. I decided to enroll in an economics course during my freshman year. And the truth is, it was love at first sight. I... really liked math and analytic reasoning, but I also cared about human beings and wanted to do something that was less abstract and more connected to people's lives. And economics was that combination that I felt passionate about. Did you know what you were going to do
0: with your degree when you graduated?
1: I wasn't sure. I always wanted to work In a public policy job, to have the opportunity to apply the economics I've learned to. Real world policy making. So that was something that I always wanted to do. I knew that I needed to get a PhD in economics. I had no hesitation in going to graduate school, and I went to graduate school immediately. When I left graduate school, I decided, as many people do, that teaching in a university, gaining experience, doing research, and teaching was that. It's a very satisfying career in its own right, and I might have spent my entire career in academia, I went on that track. But when the phone rang in 1994 and people from President Clinton's team asked me if I would be interested in moving to the Fed, given that that was something I had always wanted from my earliest days, it really didn't take me any time to say, yes, I'd be delighted to do that. Final time for coffee question, Janet. Okay. If you could go
0: back to college, to Brown, and do it all over again, but based on the wisdom you have now, what advice
1: would you give yourself? Well, I feel pretty good about the studies that I did. I took a great deal of economics, some math, math which is necessary, statistics, all tools that one needs. But recognizing that at the end of the day, economics is about people and how they behave and what promotes their welfare. I think I would have studied more psychology more sociology, maybe try to deepen my understanding of how people behave with other people, how they interact in groups, what some of the ways are. Economists often model people as though they're always rational when they make decisions and always looking ahead and thinking through every option and weighing it very carefully. But The truth is, and even some of my own research over the years, has focused on the fact that people don't really make decisions that way. Often they're impulsive, often they're short-sighted, they have other considerations in mind when they make decisions. And I think I would have studied along with economics, more psychology, more sociology. I think all of those fields are important in understanding what makes people tick. Well, thank you so much for giving
0: us a little bit of a window into what makes you tick. And thank you for your service Thank you thank to you, this country over many years many years and for getting our economy on much sounder footing. Well, thank you. It's been a real privilege to have the opportunity to serve. And I want to thank you, Janet, for making Time for Coffee today with me and the Time for Coffee community. I learned a tremendous amount and I have just such profound admiration for you and for the work that you have done and will continue to do for many years.
1: Thank you so much, Andrea. It's really been a pleasure to be with you for coffee today.
0: Thanks so much for listening to Time for Coffee, where the professionals in the jobs that most interest you always have time to grab coffee 24-7, no matter where you live.